Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Senior Pastor Matt Homeyer. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, visit our website at trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. As you may have noticed, Jacob has absconded with the corral to New York. They are uh, the requiem they performed here a month or so ago for us. They are joining with churches from around the country to sing that at Carnegie Hall, uh, Heather Sorensen's requiem. And so we, uh, they have arrived safely and I hear the first practice went well but we miss them when they are not here. But if you were wondering where the choir was, they're, they're having a blast in New York today. Thank you to those who decorated in the tight time frame between uh, last Sunday and Thanksgiving who came in and made this space look uh, wonderful. We appreciate it so much, the, the time and effort put into that. Uh, let me pray for us as we begin this morning. God, we do thank you for Thanksgiving for the time had with family and friends. We thank you for the Chorale's opportunity to sing and perform in worship in New York for their safety to and from. And now for us, God, as we begin this journey to Bethlehem, as we begin the work of preparing our souls to receive this great gift of Emmanuel, God with us. In your name we pray, amen. Now we are cheating a little bit this morning. Just going to admit that up front. We are beginning Advent today. For the purists among you who really love Advent or maybe grew up in another tradition, Advent in the rest of the world doesn't really begin until next week. But Jacob and I figured, hey, we're Baptists. We're free church. We can, you know, we're, we're kind of cool just for doing Advent anyway. And so we thought we would start it a week earlier, uh, which is generally it starts the week after Thanksgiving. And that way, Christmas Eve, we're not having to light a whole bunch of candles. Christmas Eve can be its own thing. And so uh, don't tell your friends and other churches that you've already celebrated the first week of Advent. Don't spoil it from them. for them. Uh, others will begin it next week. We are beginning it this week, which is ironic because Advent is a season of waiting. Uh, as Debbie instructed the kids, it means uh, coming. It's to look for ones arriving or an events arriving. But it also is, is the for us, the Christian season of waiting, of slowing ourselves down. So we really have hurried up Advent so we can wait. And we fully realize the irony of that. You know, the church, except maybe on Easter morning, is never more out of step with the world around us than in this Advent season. And, and that's a good thing. The season in Advent, as I mentioned, as you've heard spoken of before, is, is this season of waiting. It's this, it's this break on our lives to say, don't rush so quickly to Christmas. We're not meant to leap from Thanksgiving to Christmas morning in one single bound. There is work to be done in our souls. 
There's work to be done in our families. There's work to be done in our the body of faith to prepare ourselves to receive this greatest of gifts yet again this year. But everything else around us, we know, <laughs> pulls us helter-skelter into the holiday season. It entices us to be a part of this mad dash from Thanksgiving to Christmas. I mean, if your family is anything like mine, we're already in it. We, we rushed home from Thanksgiving to get back to San Antonio so we could buy the tree and we could hang up lights and we could start decorating and you've got to start watching the movies and watching the shows and then listening to the songs and oh my gosh we haven't bought anything yet what are the lists who do we need to buy for as soon as thanksgiving is over for many of you even before thanksgiving begun the more prepared among you it rushes us a rushing torrent of merriment we're encouraged to participate in but when we rush this season and fill all of our month from Thanksgiving to December 25th with elves on the shelves and present buying and decorating and all the busyness related to Christmas, we may rush right past what God has for us, what God wants us to experience, to learn, to embrace this season. God desires us to wait, to pause on some of the celebration to wait on singing joy to the world, to allow our souls a little time, a little space to know and feel their need for this son of God to be born and to rekindle hope for his return. The first Sunday of Advent is always the hardest for me, the hope Sunday. Not because I don't hope, but because it's funny that we, in celebrating the first coming of Jesus, we kind of uh, skip over that for one Sunday and look to Jesus' second coming. And to look at Jesus' second coming, to, to confess hope, really, is to confess that all is not right in the world. If all was well in the world, we, we would have no need of Jesus' return. We would have no read of hope, need of hope because hope would be realized among us. On this first Sunday of Advent, we confess that all is not merry in this world. And no amount of tinsel and garland can cover up the brokenness and the need within us and around us. The conflicts writ large in the world are mirrored in our own souls, in our own lives, in our own communities. We are often mean and small. We are often destructive to ourselves and to our relationships and to those we love and live near, even when we know better. We know brokenness all too well. Without spelling that out for you, I really would just like you, we're, we're gonna kind of go down in the depths here together, all right? It's gonna turn, hang with me, but I want us to not avoid going down in the depths together for that is part of the purpose of this Sunday. When you think of what is broken in the world, when you think of what is broken perhaps in your own life, your own sphere of influence, what is on your heart and what is on your mind? What global situations, what beloved people, what relationships? funny, we know the joy and grace and salvation 
Yet we remain mired in swamps of guilt and shame and anger and jealousy and covetousness. We know brokenness in our families, in our relationships, and in spite of our best intentions, we feel daily the reality of our sin and the ways we've fallen short of the glory of God in our own lives. We know that all is not right and all is not well. In spite of the shine of the Christmas lights, <laughs> in spite of how elegantly decorated our, our tree might be, in spite of how warm It's a Wonderful Life will make us feel when we watch it yet again, all is not right in the world. And so we have to wonder then, as we celebrate the coming of Jesus again, if we celebrate this again, and we are people of resurrection, then why must this remain? Why does this remain so that Christ has come and still all is not well? And to be honest with you, for me, the story of the serpent and Adam and Eve doesn't quite cut it to answer that question. That is the how, perhaps, but that's not enough. I need to know the why. I need to know why in God's power, why in God's love, he doesn't come and just make it all right. If God is God, why doesn't he fix us? Why doesn't he fix me? Why doesn't he fix the world? Why does all of our charity and giving not end poverty and abuse and hunger? I mean, why do all of the good laws in the world not end injustice? Why does God wait? to send his son back and defeat evil once and for all. We see and we feel and we hear, we know all is not right. All is not as God intends. And we feel a little desperation. We ask God, why won't you move in power? And while we ask, we wait. God's people have often in history found it necessary for them to wait. It's waiting on God in desperation that's the background of our text today in Isaiah 64. Waiting for God in desperation of exile, really, that is the background. Exile was a torturous time for God's people. We've talked about this a little bit in my weeks here. I'm sure you've talked about it many times before. God had promised certain things to his people. Quick background. They were promised lands, the promised land. They were promised temple. They were where God would reside. God's presence would be with them. They were promised a king of their own choosing that would be God's person for them. And they were promised descendants. And in really a very short amount of time, all of those were removed or put very much in question. The temple was destroyed. The king was deposed. The land was, was occupied by foreigners and anyone of any economic value whatsoever was deposed and taken far from the homeland, from the promised land to Babylon. And even the descendants were in question. Would this people survive living this long distance from home? Would they ever get back to the, the land God had promised them? And this is in the background of this latter part of Isaiah, uh, where after 70 plus years, they're finally allowed to come home. And there's joy in that. Yes. But they get back to Jerusalem and other people now occupy the land. And they're not so excited. God's people are back. And there's enmity and there's strife. And 
and there's no walls to the city and the, the temple is destroyed. And while they lived a fairly decent standard of life in Babylon, what they know back in Jerusalem is hunger and unending poverty. And we come to that place in Isaiah 64 today. They experience joy at being able to return only to get back and face greater hardship than they ever faced in Babylon. All was not right. All was not well. And as Isaiah observed all of this happening, he felt his people's desperate need for God. And, and he cries out to them here in, in chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake or tremble before you. You would come and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to tremble at, the, at your presence. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. From the depths of Isaiah's suffering. And since that all is wrong and painful for his people, he comes and he asks God to act in might. Since everything was wrong, he said, God, just come make yourself known. Come down and tear the sky open so that we can see you. God, come and shake the mountain irrefutably so that we would know you are here, so that we would know you are God. When all is not right, when all is not well, this is all of our inclinations. We want God to do something big. God, appear to us. God, rip the sky open and, and come show yourself to us. God, break the earth open and let us know that it is you. God, do something to fix this mess that to show people that you are God. It, it recognizes the power of God. It recognizes that the only hope for the world is in God. And it's the logical choice. How easy it would be for us if God worked that way all the time. We would have to do very little. We just wait for God to work, to sit back. We wouldn't have to fight. We wouldn't have to struggle. Yet, very rarely does God work like a wrecking ball like that. I mean, come in and just shake things up and make it so irrefutable. Far more often, and even when he does, the results in the Old Testament of, of that, of God's people remaining faithful for long is not good. It doesn't seem to be long-lasting and effective. Far more often, God's work is a quiet work, a patient work that has its effect over time. Isaiah goes on to explore his belief about God in, in light of their suffering and waiting for God to act. Verse 5, he says, You come to the help of those who gladly do right, those who remember your ways. You help those who remember you. But when we continue to sin against them, against your ways, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All the best things we do are like filthy rags. Our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us 
and made us waste away. Isaiah articulates his frustration. He says, you've done good things for us and yet we turned away from you. And so you've punished us and rightly so. But now no one follows you and you've turned your, your you feel their catch 22. We messed up, we get it, God. But now no one follows you and how can anyone follow you unless you turn to us? You don't need, you shouldn't have to turn to us, God, but how will we ever turn to you if you don't turn to us? Isaiah feels hopeless. What hope is there if God is God and just? They don't deserve for God to act on their behalf and continue in their sin. How can God act among a people who don't follow him? But how can people learn to follow if God does not act? Isaiah is at the end of his rope. Even though Christ has come for us, it's easy for us to fall into this trap, this same line of thinking. We look around and we see the limitless ways our world does not follow God. And from our vantage point, historically, we we say, I don't see any signs of this changing. I don't see many signs of this globally, historically getting much better. Poverty and violence and rampant abuse and greed and covetousness just surround us. All of this happening in our own backyards and across the world. And yet, you know, the leading story on the news will be the hope of our nation. Did Good Friday and Cyber Monday go up two to three percent? All is not well. We, along with Isaiah, Isaiah, feel like we're at the end of our rope. You know, a big part of the job of these prophets, I find prophets hard to read sometimes. I don't know if you do as well. But a big part of their job, like Isaiah, is helping the people to weep for what they've lost. It's helping the people to, to recognize the hopelessness of their own strength and to bring them down into a place of weeping where they feel their need for God, to help bring them to a very low point, to feel the desperation of their situation, perhaps to confess that they are out of hope and they know it. It's not a bad thing, church, to step back from forced merriment and weep for all that is not well in the world to take into our souls all that is not right, to feel our hopelessness, to fix much of what ails us, what ails society, what ails our family and friends. C.S. Lewis once said, the Christian faith is a thing of unspeakable joy, but it does not begin with joy, but rather in despair. And there is no good trying to reach joy without first going through the despair. It's not the worst thing in the world to know we're out of hope. That elections aren't going to fix any of the fundamental problems of the world or rise in retail spending this holiday season will not fix anything that ails us. Blaming our enemies across the table, across the aisle, across the world won't do us any good, white-knuckling it through life with a smile on our face, brave and happy no matter what's going on, will do us no good. We would do well to weep and feel the desperation of our condition that can't be covered up with garland and light. 
The prophets help the people weep for what they have lost, to feel the pain and despair for their desperate need. But they don't leave them there. In verse 8, the prophet utters one of the most beautiful words in any language. Yet. Some of your translations might say but, but I like yet. Yet means maybe our despair isn't the end of the story. Yet means maybe there is a source of hope beyond ourselves, a top source of power beyond our world. Yet means maybe God deals not only in justice, but in grace as well. Yet, oh Lord, in our helplessness, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, or do not be angry forever. Do not remember our sins forever. Look on us, and I love that he repeats it. Look on, like a little kid, you know. Look on us, look on us, look at me. We pray. Yet provides the hope beyond reasonable hope that God will act even when we don't deserve it. At the end of our rope, we will find this well-tied thick knot that is yet from God that we can hold on to. That yet is hope. Hope beyond logic, hope beyond reason, hope beyond what could be expected. Isaiah and his people had to wait a long time for yet to come in the form of a baby being born whose name was Jesus. You and I have experienced the power of yet. In our brokenness, in our sin, in our desperation, at the end of our spiritual rope, Christ came to us and offered hope, offered us salvation and blessings untold, hope unexpected, hope unearned. Still, all is not right in our world. We feel our desperation, for there is still something yet to come. Although Christ has come and forgiven us, although Christ has come and, and grace and peace and the ways of God flood the world in so many wonderful ways. So much brokenness remains, but there will be a day when Christ returns and evil will be defeated and brokenness will be healed on a creation level scale and all will be right and good. we must figure out how to live in this in-between, in between the hope of Jesus and the hope of ultimate redemption of all things. To borrow Isaiah's imagery, we are clay in the potter's hands, being formed in this in-between time by faithfulness and obedience over time. Creation itself is the clay in the potter's hands. As the potter works, if you've ever watched a potter work, it's fascinating. I can't do it, but it's fun to watch. There are times when the clay is just a mess, just a blob with no 
idea of what it will be except in the potter's mind. And you don't know yet it'll be that vase or that cup or that bowl or whatever it will be. And, and as the potter forms, sometimes it, it is a mistake and the clay collapses in on itself and it's a mess yet again. And yet the potter must continue to shape, continue to shape because in the potter's mind and in the potter's skill, they know what is possible from that mess. All the clay has to do is to remain pliable and to remain in the potter's hands. All the clay has to do is to remain in the potter's hands for enough time. This is our role. We are clay in the potter's hands. What will be? What is our future? How does all of this end? Will any of this ever get better? Will this situation, that situation be fixed? Will we know peace? We don't have the power to answer those things. What we can do is trust in a God who will one day redeem all things. Trust in a God who is sending his very son to dwell among us, to bring forgiveness to bring salvation, and in the meantime, remain in the potter's hands, pliable, willing to be molded and shaped, willing to abide, to remain there in the potter's hands. Don't rush to the manger, church. Put up your lights, decorate your tree, begin your shopping, but don't get lost in these things. Wait. And watch and weep. Look at the world around you and pray. Look at the brokenness within and without and pray. Do what God leads you to do, to do your small part of healing, your small part of God's work in this world. Look at the places that reveal God's presence to you and join him there. Be drawn into the drama and miracle of Christ's birth, and look with great expectancy to that day when Christ will return. And in the meantime, well, may we remain clay in the potter's hands until the day we are completed in him. Let me pray for us. God, help us to remain in your hands, to be formed by you. There is so little we can control in this world, so little we can control of our own lives. And it is good to realize this, not in a way that leads only to despair, but in a way that leads in trust of you. For you are our only hope. Through this gift of your son, which we prepare to receive God, is the only avenue of hope in this world. Help us to trust in you. Help us to remain pliable in your hands. In your name. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Senior Pastor Matt Homeyer. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.